As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review of Friday the 13th Part 2, starring Amy Steele, John Fury, Adrian King, Betsy Palmer, Steve Dashowitz, and Warrington Gillette. Directed by Steve Miner, released in 1981 on a budget of $1.25 million, grossed $21.7 million at the box office. I said in our last episode, Ron, that this was the first Friday the 13th movie that I remember seeing in earnest. And, uh, you know, in a, in a bygone era of movies, this one did something that I really appreciated at the time. It gave me a nice little, uh, you know, recap of what had happened before, like previously on Friday the 13th. Yeah, it, it's definitely it's a good way to uh, re to make use of the ending of your first movie. Literally, the first fifteen minutes of this movie is flashback time. Yeah, I mean, you talk about padding the runtime. I think the total time of this is eighty-seven minutes, and there's maybe sixty-three of it that's actually new footage that's not credit sequences. <laughs> like it, the, you talk about short. Like this is this may be the shortest story of all of them. <laughs> Uh, when it comes down to it, I mean, they, uh, you know, the studios, uh, were really happy, of course, with the returns, but the initial backers to the movie were the ones that went to Cunningham and said, you got to do a sequel and you got to bring back this Jason kid. That ending was great. And Cunningham said, that is the worst idea I've ever heard. That'll never work. And luckily everyone ignored him. And as he says, luckily everyone ignored me because that I was clearly wrong about that. Well, we we know how much uh, esteem he held the first film in, so right, like it, he didn't even care. Sense. Like he, yeah, he wanted to go. He used it as a springboard to do other things, which is fine. I mean, and you know, because he still, you know, maintains a level of of uh, connection to these now. He got back involved with it years later, but uh, you know, he he had his moments with it too. But uh, I did. They do make the decision early. We're going with the killer is going to be Jason. It's really a much better decision than having the killer be a quasi-geriatric old lady in a sweater. Right, like if she had been resurrected or something, like that would be horrible. Like that's, no. Well, that's that's funny uh, because, well, we can get to the ending of this movie when we get to the ending of this movie, but I have some fun facts for you. Okay, okay, we'll have to talk to... uh... We will have to talk to uh, about that when we get there for sure. So, well, let's do a quick plot summary here on part two, Ron, and then uh, get into the movie. Five years after the bloodbath at Camp Crystal Lake, all that remains is the legend of the boy Jason Voorhees and his deranged mother who murdered several camp counselors despite being AARP aged. We catch up early with Alice, who's still trying to shake the effects only to be killed in her apartment by a mysterious man. At a nearby campground, the new camp counselors and organizers are undeterred by the warnings to avoid the infamous site of Camp Blood. 
One by one, they are attacked and slaughtered until two, Paul and Jenny, find the carnage. After dispatching Paul, Jason chases Jenny to where he's been hiding out all these years, in a shack in the woods with a shrine built around his mother's severed head. Jenny puts her psychology course education to use by trying to trick Jason into thinking she's his mother, but the ruse doesn't last. Paul returns and fights Jason some more until Jenny buries a machete in his shoulder. As she and Paul make it back to camp and prepare to leave, Jason jumps through the window to attack her once more. After Jenny wakes up, alone, on a stretcher, we see she too has been driven mad by her encounter with Jason Voorhees as we focus on a close-up of Mother's Head back on the shrine. Yeah, very uh very fleet uh story there this time around. It's uh it's basically we're going to we're going to reopen the camp, but we're not reopening Camp Blood because no, uh we're going to reopen next door to it. And uh because that's so much safer. Well, you know, but the, the town like had banned anybody from even going there, which, you know, good on that town after 20 something years of horror. They're like no one is allowed in that part of the woods. We're not even spraying it from mosquitoes. Zika virus be darned. Don't care. <laughs> you know, so you go in there at your own risk and uh, good on them. But you know what? We didn't talk about part of it in the plot summary there. We do get a coda to that last movie. And we get the recap of the last 15 minutes of it as Alice is having a nightmare on a bed. And for years, for years, I was like, when is this taking place? What happens? Because we see these legs and these feet, you know, are stalking her and eventually get into her place and kill her which we can talk about in a second, but I thought like this was all like happening. And then he went back to the camp and all this other stuff went down, but no, according to Wikipedia and all of the great people that love continuity in life, (laughs) this is supposed to have been like a couple of months after the first movie. And she's gotten out of the hospital and apparently not facing murder charges of any kind and all this stuff. And she's hanging around to try and, you know, get over this traumatic experience because yes, staying in that spot is the right idea. Yeah, that 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 seems like a great idea. <laughs> you know, I had a really bad bike accident once when I was a kid. Getting back on a bike did not make that better. Okay, it really didn't. It ne- matter of fact, it was never the same for me. Even to this day, it is never the same for me. On <laughs> one, yeah, I don't. I, I, I know I, that works for some people. Good for you. It that that I just don't know it works in traumatic experiences. Yeah, I I uh, had a really bad car accident in the snow. And since then, I could not drive in the snow. Good thing I live fairly far south, so I only have to worry about it like, you know, five or six days out of the year. But at the same time, trying it again has not made it any easier for me. Uh, But maybe we're just not as tough as, you know, 70s haircut Adrian King. (laughs) Yes, she still maintains that haircut. Well, it was only like a few months later. You know, and as as it turns out for her, you know, she like felt terrible about the or didn't feel terrible. Let me back up. She actually got a stalker out of that first movie or whatever and was like, didn't want anything to do with this. And I'm sure they offered her a good you know, chunk of change. She said, OK, but uh, I, I'm going to do this like in a day. They shot her in one night uh, for this. And as a matter of fact, her career as she said it, she just reevaluated her career, decided I really don't want to do this if this is what comes with it. And I mean, that sucks for her, but uh, that explains her, I guess, absence and quick dispatching in this uh, first uh, coda. But here's the thing. She had a stalker who broke into her apartment and like messed with her stuff. Right. 
and here she is in her apartment, and a man breaks in and murders her. Right, yeah, he puts mother's head in the refrigerator, makes the cat jump out at her, and then stabs her with an ice pick through the temple. Like, that's that's messed up that she let them get that far into this. But I, may, I don't know, maybe she trusted the filmmakers enough to go, yeah, okay. I mean, the guy that directed this was an associate producer and, you know, I'm sure like 40 other things on the last movie, Steve Miner, he's a horror veteran, and I'm I'm sure she was like, okay, Steve, because it's you, I will let you do this. Yeah, uh, that makes sense, but I, I don't know. I, th- I think if it was me, it would weird me out to have my would, nightmare played out. It would be like if you got John Kennedy or Robert Kennedy's grandchild or something to play a politician that gets murdered, you know, <laughs> in a season on a television show. Like, maybe that's a little too close to home. You know, like, it just, eh, maybe we shouldn't do that. You know, poison me with some tea, you know, whatever. But I don't think I want to get shot in a limousine. I don't know. Maybe she found it cathartic. Who knows? Maybe they just said, well, I've been written this. Maybe Steve Miner was like, well, I've been written this apartment in town. I guess we can just shoot there. I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Like, they were just like, well, we got this one place. Let's just go shoot there and be done with it. And they did. And well, you know what, though? I'll say this. And uh, again, this being my introduction into the series when I first saw it, I thought, man, what a great opening. I mean, because it is a really good and like quick jump. It's again, it's the quick, cold open kill. Yeah, it it definitely uh, establishes, you know, once again, what you're in for and it and it and it neatly kind of closes off the first movie because you know it won't be a situation where like everyone's waiting for jamie lee curtis to come back because right. they just cut her head they just stab her in the brain and then get it over with in the first 10 minutes right yeah i mean it's it's over quick right and so you know Itsy Bitsy Spider Girl uh, avoids seeing Jason in the street, and that's uh, that's the end of it. And we get into the our souped up uh, intro uh, section, and we meet our new counselors. And I guess this is the part where the five years kicks in, if if we're to believe the timeline, right? Yeah, this time they go from uh, breaking glass to an explosion. Right, right. I noticed that. I was like, well, I guess we've upped the game now. We've got TNT involved. So clearly they had a pyrotechnics budget now, at least for the, uh, <laughs> yeah, they gave Saul Bass some dynamite and said here. <laughs> or something. Well, I'm not too certain that the people back east that were financing some of this <laughs> weren't in some of the construction industry, uh, shall we say. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that maybe another day. <laughs> but hey, good on them. You know, they put a little money behind this thing because they figured and figured mostly right. Hey, we're going to get it back because look at what that other one did. And yeah, you know, for the most part, yeah, 20 times over your investment, that'll do. You know, most people don't get that kind of return on anything, uh, particularly inside of like a year, uh, which is, you know, when you think about films, that's what you're doing and that's what they are. But we get all kinds of different pretty people here now. Ted, Jeff and Sandra are the one, like the names that I sort of remembered. Gangly uh, Ginger. Um, right. So yeah. we have to have one of those. Um, and I've never, have you seen that guy in anything else? He looks so friggin' familiar, but I, I don't know anything else he's been in. Yeah, he looks super familiar, and I couldn't tell you anything that he's ever done. I mean, he's um, like the original version of the Shermanator, if you know what that is, you know. So. Oh yeah, he, he definitely was, looks like uh, that kid uh, from America, yeah. the American Pie kid. Right, he's he's that kid, or he's you know he looks like one of the kids um, 
like Danny Cooksey's older brother or something, you know, he was, he was dad. I don't know. He just, he just feels like I should have seen him in several other things, but, and maybe I haven't, I just don't know it, but good old Ted. And then we get Jeff and Sandra who are, I mean, this is supposed to be 1984. That's what they're telling us. These people do not dress like it's 1984. I remember 1984. I, that hair was not 1984. Oh, um, that kid was in, um, What's Stuart? What's his name? Stuart Charno, the actor who plays uh, the ganky redheaded guy. Uh, he, yes, he was in uh, Christine. That's what it is then. Okay, because I have we have reviewed that. Nick and I did that one back a few years ago. When we were doing some Stephen King stuff. So very cool. So okay, well I knew I'd seen him somewhere else. So that's that's good to know. Yeah, I, I thought so too. And that's the that's the only thing I can think of uh, can come together with. But yeah. They definitely don't look 1984. Everybody still kind of looks like they're in the 70s still. And I'm not sure if that's just because fashion moved a lot slower back then <laughs> or if that's just because it was another situation where they told them to bring old clothes to the set. That well, they you, you, know what, you know what it is? Is They're setting this in a timeline when something very culturally significant has not taken off yet. In real life, so that's why it looks behind. MTV is not a thing in, in the real world at this point, or else these people would look a lot different. Because in 1984, after watching music videos for three years, kids didn't dress like this. You were wearing leather with, and somebody would have one glove, usually a white kid, and you know the people were doing different stuff. You were you were perming that hair up, like Sandra's hair, as as frizzy as it is, she'd be like teasing that stuff way up and hairspraying the hell out of it. Yeah, there's. I mean, maybe maybe Jeff has long hair and all that stuff, but they, they didn't. They wouldn't have looked like this. These look so, like people who were who were dressing still before MTV influenced the culture. Some Alice Cooper eyeliner or something. <laughs> yeah, some something would have been there. That's the thing that I noticed this time. I'm like, what's missing here? I'm like, aha, they're they're in a movie timeline where MTV exists, but none of these people have ever seen that or know what that is, and they're clearly not being influenced by it yet. And that's the difference in, in the way all of them look. And I I think that's a very real thing to point out. They they do not look like what 1984 kids should look like. And we're going to see that in one of the later films here coming up in these first few when it's clear MTV has taken over. Yeah, the, it, it definitely feels like a, like it's stuck. Uh, right. And I mean, I, I think, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm, you're good. And I think it's worth saying, like, this one, the third one, and the fourth one, if we're to buy the timeline, like, happened within a few days of each other. So it actually will catch up with itself naturally, which is nice for it. But in this one, it's it's why it looks so noticeable. And, you know, we talked about last time that the way everyone dressed and looked dated it so horribly. And I feel the same about this. Like, this movie feels incredibly dated by the way everyone dresses. Yeah. It, it, it Again, it's, a, it's another flashback to when crop tops were a thing. Right. Crop tops and apparently not wearing any uh, underwear. Uh, was a thing. So, I mean, because I don't think any of the girls here own any. So, it, it would no, that so. One, no, um, the girl uh, who hits it off with uh, Mark. Vicky. Who, well, I, yeah, Vicky. She's, she's got lower realm. I'm talking about upper range. I felt like I was oh. watching a precursor to, uh, what was that bad um, Jennifer uh, Grey uh Tales from the Crypt thing we watched that was like voodoo action. And, oh, yeah. Tales yeah. from the Crypt. Uh, 
witch doctor. Yeah, <laughs> booga booga, whatever. Yeah, that I felt like I was watching that again. I was like, well, that's, that's clearly what we're what the world we're in here. But we've got pretty people of the late seventies, early eighties. But the the main she, two, she wishes ahead. she had Jennifer Grey's breasts. <laughs> but I, I, I think man, I do too. <laughs> the main ones, though, I think are the the Ted, Sandra, Jeff, and then Paul and Jenny are are our big characters here because they're the I guess head counselors. We're we're to mm-hmm. find out okay and paul's like running the camp now and we don't know like if he's if he's related to the other dude's family that you know got slaughtered doing this or whatever he has this hilarious scene with the sheriff who catches jeff and sandra running around and checking out camp blood you know when they're not supposed to and it, you know the sheriff's like what are you gonna do about it he's like yeah no extra desserts for them tonight just make sure about that like he just does not give an f at all what these people think he feels like a holdover too out of that Ex hippie, you know, no authority thing. Yeah, well, he just wants the cop gone so he doesn't find his weed stash. Is that what his, it is? Yeah, his secret, his grow fields. Yeah, I'm sure that that guy's definitely, you know, chemically enhanced. <laughs> but that's the other thing too, and we talked about last time. You know, was Alice the typical final girl? I would say, right, Jenny is not your typical final girl. Clearly, her and Paul have a thing. They have a clear moment where they're together and i don't know if anything goes down or not but you know they end up spending the night together she's not your typical final girl either you know she's smart and she comes off like that but she uh the only thing difference between her and the other girls is she doesn't get completely naked and she seems maybe a year or two older than them but that's about it yeah it's it's definitely again we've got an atypical final girl and that and that she seems to have more of a social life than you would expect. Maybe that's how they decided to differentiate themselves from Halloween. It's to have more extroverted characters. I think you're right. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, because if you remember anything about Halloween too, and I mean, that movie came out the same year as this one. And uh, oddly enough, both feature kills that are oddly similar <laughs> with one another. So you don't know who was chasing who at that point, but Clearly, Friday the 13th was on to something was that, well, you know, we have to make these people relatable in some way, like, it, it, since this whole movie exists just to kill them. Like, there's nothing else we're trying to get at here. So I I thought that was smart of their part to have a differentiating factor since it was so obvious what they were going after last time. It's at least an attempt to do something different when, when your whole franchise is based on Someone saying, "Hey, let's do what Halloween did, but but more so." Yeah, and at a camp with more blood. Yeah. yeah. So no, I, I agree. I mean, they they've got to do something different to to set it apart, and they do that here by setting up this. And this is a huge freaking cast of people. Like, there's a lot of people. You know, Mark's the guy in the wheelchair. Vicky is the girl that seems to be kind of hanging on to him. And then you've got like other nameless people who like only exist to be at the dinner scene to say, yeah, we'll go out on the town. And then they're hanging out at the bar, you know, <laughs> like they, we never see them again. And that's the funny thing. I, you know, I've remembered this movie having, you know, a big cast and I thought it had a big body count and I guess it does, but it, I mean, it's not nearly as bad as it could have been, right? Like ha- over half of them survive. Yeah. And including Paul who just disappears halfway through the movie. 
Well, well, Ted, Ted's the one that disappears. Paul. Oh, is it Ted? So, Sorry. Yeah, it's Ted. Yeah, Ted just Ted goes to another bar, and you know what? Wisest decision that loser ever made. You know, it's like, can I go back to the camp with him? No, nah, I'm going to go to another bar. You yeah, know? his his, uh, <laughs> his debilitating alcoholism <laughs> saved his life. <laughs> yeah, I hope he got some help for that later on, and didn't feel guilty about the fact that he avoided certain death. Um, so. Uh, because I mean, yeah, it's it's funny how they they play all this out because it's you know they've closed down Crystal Lake. This is a new camp, and I do love though how this movie like references the other one almost as if it knows it's a movie, you know, because we tell a campfire tale about Jason, and we get a cheesy scare. Yeah, that uh, that was a fun scare because it reminded me of uh, in my younger days, my parents and my aunt and uncle bought an RV. And we would take the RV down to Lake Cumberland on the Kentucky-Tennessee border and, you know, have a fire, you know, cook some hot dogs, go swimming, you know, ride boats. You know, the, the kind of crap that you do that, that normal people do at summer camp. But since I right. didn't like socializing with other people, I, I typically did by myself. <laughs> um, but one of the times we went down was going to be a Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. That was going to be the Friday. And my uncle had planned it to jump out and scare me and my cousin, you know, to death uh, while we were around the fire. <laughs> so he jumps out and he's got a hockey mask on and he's got a knife and everyone screams. And it is like, well, I was going to rent some of the Friday the 13th movies for you guys to watch, but I couldn't find any. So I rented like <laughs> Halloween 4 and 5. <laughs> Well, uh, those are tamer, so I guess, for this, uh, the settings. I, you know, I made the mistake once of showing a college friend the Blair Witch Project before we went on a camping trip, and uh, that did Ooh, not boy. go well. Yeah, that didn't go well for her. She did not have a good time. So uh, You're going <laughs> to have a bad time. Yeah, I, I take full responsibility for uh, French frying when I should have pizzaed with those skis. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so. But no, I, I love that, though. I love the fake scare because as an old Boy Scout or whatever, of course, they were all always trying to spin some kind of yarn about scary stuff. And somebody would invariably try to do this crap, you know, too. They never did the costume bit. The thing I was amazed about the costume, because we'll find out later when Jason uses the spear to kill people with, is that that's, like, not a prop. That's actually real. And I'm like, holy crap, man, where did you find that? Or did Spencer's just not care back then? So and they just sold it's, you a real spear with a latex mask. Yeah, it's the... Um the Zuni fetish doll starter kid. I mean, something. So, and, and old Ted, so of course, gets that. But no, I, I do like that. That they're like, oh, okay, that's enough of that Jason crap, blah, blah, blah. And of course, Jenny can't let it go. So she'll talk endlessly about it at the bar because that's what you do when you get drunk is you wax philosophical about stuff you have no idea about. So and she seems to be great at that. But uh, yeah. hey, we, we, we get rid of old crazy Ralph, though, man. He gets garroted up next to a tree. And uh, I was yeah, like, maybe yeah, Jason's they, tired of him blowing his cover. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they they kill um, they kill Crazy Ralph almost immediately, and then they kill the sheriff almost immediately with a claw hammer. It, it right. a very fun kill. And that's a that's you know I I remembered Halloween too. The police officer in the hospital gets whacked with a claw hammer too, in almost a a very similar scene. Oh, like, is well, that the uh, is that the comparison? 
murder you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, that that is the comparison murder I'm talking about directly. Yes. So and also, well, and it's well known that John Carpenter went back and reshot a lot of like gore in that movie because he felt like Friday the Thirteenth had upped the game and the, the the movie that had been made was really boring. It didn't have any gore in it, so they went back and did a lot of the bloodier stuff that you see in in Halloween too. But yeah, the claw hammer kills are on on um, authority figures are. Uh, eerily similar one one wonders who who knew what about whose script but uh anyway um so <laughs> you don't see a lot of claw hammer kills anymore you know, know why that is it's it, it the thwack thud that it makes is it's really unnerving like it's it's well done the good foley work so um back in those days when it wasn't easy to do like you had i wonder what like piece of fruit got hit with a claw hammer uh, oh, I think I think a, a water I think a watermelon got gallagered for that. What water, watermelon or a cantaloupe? You know, I was wondering like, was a pineapple give you the right effect? I'm sure they tried a lot of different options, but I, I'm sure someone had a fun day of, of going to the grocery store and smashing <laughs> fruit with a claw we're hammer. Going, we're going to we're going to kill a lot of fruit today at work. So yeah, so just leave the tape just leave the tape running. Maybe we can use these for Halloween <laughs> <laughs> too. Well, you never know. Like you know, imagine if like you know somebody's kid uh did the kindergarten cop two things like my daddy is a is a foley artist and he kills fruit all day you know so maybe that's what happens but uh you know, for, for fruit ninja <laughs> there we go that's it so, but yeah as we said you know paul doesn't care at all about the local police even though they're not fans of jeff and sandra and or, or the camp at all and jason has no respect for the authority still and we get the night on the town except for jeff and sandra and Scott and the what I call the other girl whose name is Terry. Now we hadn't talked about them. Scott's like introduction to us is Terry walks by wearing half a shirt, nothing under it, and shorts that are clearly gonna be uncomfortable in a few hours for her. And he shoots her in the backside with a with a slingshot and then winks at her. Like in porn star knowingly style. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, Ugh, you idiot. And then of course, you know, they're attracted to each other. So I expected them to like get it on and they don't. They just kind of well, he, you know, assaults her <laughs> several times, and then she kind of feels sorry for him before they both get killed. Yeah, it's the 80s. That probably doesn't count as, like, sexual harassment. Probably not, but it would be nowadays. Like, you can't imagine it, right? But, but Yeah, the, the, and it definitely yeah. feels like – it definitely feels like they tried to talk the, those two into doing a sex scene, and they're like, uh, I don't know about all that. Yeah, like maybe they were for, like, maybe for five thousand extra dollars, and they're like, uh, no, no, yeah, we're good. Uh, well, they talked that girl into like completely going, you know, buff for the uh, the skinny dip scene. So they got that out of her, but I guess she was like, I ain't doing that with nobody else around. Like that's me, you, the camera operator, like no, nobody else. So because she does that, he's stolen her clothes. Of course, that that's the pickoff, right? Is Scott the pervert gets hung up by a rope trap, you know, upside down, Scooby Doo style, I would say, and then uh, macheted on the throat to death the, the thing that always got me about that kill as someone who's had to use a machete to like clear things with outside is that that's not even the right side of the machete to cut stuff with like they cut his throat with like the dull top side so i was like well i wow. guess that latex would just tear no matter what so uh you know the it, it goes as well though because it's a quick kill like and that's the thing that got me is they cut away from it so fast I mean, they, they don't linger on any of the kills here the way that they kind of did in the last one. And I wonder if that's because maybe the effects didn't look as good. Well, they they couldn't get Tom Savini back because he was doing another movie. So I yeah. imagine 
know that the effects don't look as good as, you know, his meticulous craftsmanship. Because that's the one thing you could say for Tom Savini. He's got an attention to detail when it comes to, you know, cutting throats and murderous type special effects that a lot of people don't have. Well, you used the word last time, realism, that he, he has a level of realism in his work, and he likes to keep it that way, and it it makes a difference. I mean, you can tell this looks, like, cheap. Like, even though they're spending more money on this film, it looks cheap. I mean, th- some of this looks really bad, because Terry gets killed, and it's another off-screen kill. Like, we don't even know what happens to her. I guess she gets stabbed, right? So, I mean, that that's all it is. So, um it just feels so cheap. But we cut back and forth from the pickoff into Jenny's philosophical debate at the bar about what would Jason be like and that he he would be totally alone and all this stuff. And I was like, did, I mean, I'd never paid any attention to that before, you know, and I'm watching this now going, I don't know. I don't really I don't really buy. I think she's wrong. I think her theory is completely off, except for the part about he'd be pissed that his mother got killed. But. I mean, they had a problem to begin with is that they had set up that Jason was dead and now he's not. So where the H has he been all these years? And, you know, why didn't he go? Maybe I want to go say hi to my mom every now and then, especially as I watch her kill all these people. Yeah, yeah, you would think that would be, you know, something that would draw him out of hiding, I guess. Or or maybe he'd go, hey, let's do it together. He'd do the Scott Evil thing. You know, hey, we'll shoot them together. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's my mommy and me murder class. Right. Something, right? Because apparently they were each other's whole world kind of psycho-esque again. But I don't know. I mean, it's, again, I'm I'm applying too much logic. I'm trying to explain way too much about a movie that doesn't want me to think about it like that. But, again, it's we're sort of fleeting through this story, and they spend five and six and seven-minute chunks with this girl talking about it at the bar, then I'm going to sit here and go, well, what would be the point? And I'm like, well, I don't get it. It doesn't make any... It makes as much sense as it did to have an old lady be the killer last time. Eh? Just cause. <laughs> I mean, if... It, yeah, don't open the door to dime store psychology if you're not willing yeah. <laughs> to have your audience actually look closer at your source material. And right. I mean... They they try to uh, they don't even try to like distract us from it. They we sit at that bar way too long. Yes, uh, those scenes go on entirely too long. Yeah, and as as much as I like the one guy's gorming face and how he's got the uh, heroic collection of Heineken bottles or whatever it is, <laughs> Rolling Rock, I think it was Rolling Rock. Yeah, <laughs> uh, nice product placement for Rolling Rock, by the way. The if official, that's indeed what that was, yeah. <laughs> the official beer of Backwoods Alcoholics. <laughs> Friday the 13th, too. So, <laughs> yeah, though they spend way too much time on it for us to not care about it and talk about it. And I'll tell you, it's one of the the failures of this film is that they don't spend enough time on the stuff that they should, and they spend too much on this other crap. Because when we do get back to the kills, we get one of the, like, I think, again, another one of those clip reel kills when you get a Friday the 13th is the slow walk up to Mark behind while he's sitting in the wheelchair. And oh, yeah. The machete in the face and that thing backwards rolling down those stairs with that mannequin are friggin' amazing. Like, it is hilarious. I can only think that the whiteout of it was because when the mannequin fell out of it, it looked so bad they just couldn't show it. <laughs> well, when the mannequin hit the ground, I'm sure the head rolled off. So that's probably your problem right there. But yeah, that's. I, I talked in the first one about how the arrow through Kevin Bacon's throat was my like top three kills. This is like number two. 
this is my second favorite kill in any Friday the 13th movie just because it is so funny and it and it, it kind it of and it also makes me think of a later movie <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels where Steve Martin's in the wheelchair and he goes rolling down the stairs towards the beach it, it just makes me think of that every time I, and every time Mark gets that machete to the head I just start laughing I want to tell you what I think it's a rip off of is the Pink Panther movies I think it's just a direct lift out of that. <laughs> oh yeah, Mike Edwards comedy because it feels so much like Clouseau, you know, falling down the steps. But it is hilarious, you know, right? Like we're not even talking about the fact that look how diverse the cast is, right? And stuff like we, the poor wheelchair guy gets it in the face right before he's about to get it on with the hot girl, who's like she has been coming onto him on a level that is is he can't even realize it. I don't think he finally realizes it until she tells him I'll arm wrestle you for position. And he's like, oh. <laughs> so, or maybe when she asked him if everything works. And I was like, I know she was going to ask him that. Yep, she's going to ask him that. Oh, I yeah. mean, that would that would be a, a dead giveaway, I, I think. You'd yeah. think. So maybe he was really serious about whatever the hell he was training for, though. I don't know. So. <laughs> I mean, is it, was he like going to be one of the forerunners of, of Murderball or something? I, maybe he was gonna like carry the torch in the Olympics in '83. I don't know, you know. I mean, who, who knows? So, but that, well, no, this was '84, right? So maybe he was getting ready for the Olympics. Who knows? I, I don't know. But uh, he gets it, and then Jeff and Sandra get it with the what I again. I was like the prop spear that was actually that sharp. It was good enough to go through them. And uh, I, I do think it's fun though that 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 is a uh, tame sex scene uh, for a movie that has already gone full nudity with one other character and practically has with with two others here they they kept that pretty tame yeah i i can only imagine it was another situation where the actor and actress were like uh i don't well, know about all I, this I, I you know i've thought the same thing and i went digging to see like if there was anything on it the they were doing a full you know scene with her and they realized she was underage and they're like oh no 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 no, we can't do that. oh so, wow so nice. they were like okay yeah no we're not doing that and i'm sure that other actor was like now this is really uncomfortable <laughs> as if it's not with 30 other people around anyway but now this is really awkward so yeah, yeah. 30 other people around and a 16 year old <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, no, so, uh, yeah, they, but they get it, you know, and then, I, you know, I talked about before how the the knife moves like Jaws. This is the kill I was talking about, Vicky's kill, the knife mm -hmm. cam with the, the, he's got the thumb that's got the bruise under the thumb, which only happens, like, if you hit your thumb with a hammer or something, and I'm oh. like, I don't, I don't know how they got, like, if the stuntman hit his, how that occurred or whatever, whoever that was, that was a great touch. Because if you're living on your own out in the woods or whatever, you're going to nick yourself up all the time. I kind of like that little, just a little touch, but I always felt like that knife that was swimming toward her, kind of like Jaws the shark swims toward people. It's just sort of slow and delivery. And I mean like Jaws 3 the shark, not the real Jaws. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, he actually, uh, the guy who plays, uh, who does all the stunts for Jason, who isn't actually Warrington Gillette. It's a stuntman right. named Dashwitz. Steve Dashwitz. Steve Dashwitz. Uh, he actually gets his thumb cut um, in one of the scenes, and he has to get 13 stitches. Or he, it's a, the, the machete hit his middle finger, sorry. And he had to get 13 stitches, and they had to cover it with a piece of rubber. So maybe this was filmed after that, and what we're seeing is like 
the after effects of his hand healing up from getting cut with a pitchfork. I was shitty. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like they put, uh, uh, at least attempted to put more of the money on the screen. Right, uh, right. Well, I think, yeah, they, I think they totally, I think they totally did. did. Yeah, I think, and I think they blown it all out all money. Yeah. We're, we're, we're getting, getting to the end of the NFL. And this is the incredibly crumbly game because, because they didn't have any money, money to do anything else. So it's so a run around, run around, and happen and fight each other. Because that's kind of what happened. And that's that's what gets me is Jason and Paul get into basically a fist fight. And Jason doesn't kill Paul. He just hits it. And then he goes after Janie with Janie back. Yeah, I... I'd always wondered why, uh, why he didn't kill Paul. I don't know if there's any actual reason for it. I, I think again, it's one of those they didn't they didn't think about it, and and they wanted Paul to come in at the end to distract him again so that Jenny could get the upper hand. I, that's the only thing I can. Or maybe it was that he. It's kind of like you see in wrestling matches. Sometimes you think you've dispatched with that one guy, and then all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere and spears you. You know, so you're like, oh, dang, I should have killed him dead. Paul comes running out of the locker room with a steel chair. That's that's it. Yeah, Paul does the running, and that, that's that's basically what happens at the end of this. But, no, I do like the fights, though. I like that Jenny, like, gets hardware after him. Like, she gets a freaking chainsaw after him and hits him with it, and she, you know, goes at him with a pitchfork and all this stuff. Jason takes some damage from her before he ever gets hold of her. Oh. I, I guess they decided to uh... – that they hadn't touched uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre yet, so they needed to dig into that. Oh, they set that thing up, too, man. Like, early on, when they're working in the cabins and stuff, they're like, here's the chainsaw, and here's the gas, and here's how it works. And, like, they have her cutting wood with it, and I'm like, that's coming back. That's uh, Chekhov's chainsaw. So, <laughs> you know, but they didn't, but again, they don't use it, really. Like, they didn't use it to really do anything. It's just there. So it's it's another one of these... Uh, you know, it's uh, to use a wrestling analogy again. It's it's weapons in the in the uh, cage match that have to you know be used at some point. We got to get the barbed wire uh, two by four out, so or, or the tacks or whatever if it's mankind match. But yeah, so I I do like the fight though. I wanted to ask you what you thought of Jason with the bag on his head with just the one eye cut out. It's it's an interesting look. I I think it's uh, it definitely works a lot better than you know uh, Mother Voorhees in the first one. Because uh, this is a big hulking dude, uh, I think given the fact that Jason's supposed to have a really weirdly deformed head, it makes more sense for him just to put a, a bag on it, like Hunchback of Notre Dame style, or um, not Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Elephant Man style. Right, right. Uh, but at at the same time, it's you know, it's not the there's a reason I think that the the hockey mask is what took off. Right. And we'll we'll talk about that one next time. I actually thought of something this time that I had never thought of before and I wouldn't have all honesty if you and I had not reviewed this recently or the beginning of the year. I I thought it was a throwback to Last House on the Left to the Phantom Killer guy cuz he kind of did the semi clan head dress thing. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's what they were, you know, homaging to, if, if anything. Now, I can't find anything to support that at all, but it just sort of is a – I picked up on it, again, being a, a horror fan who's watched these things. And, again, we had reviewed the, the remake of that and talked about it. And I thought, you know, that kind of looks like that guy or that, that character, that killer, the Phantom Killer. So maybe that's what they were going for. Uh, or maybe they weren't going for anything at all. They probably didn't even think about it. But I'm looking at it and think, ah, oh, that that would be a nice little callback if that's what that's supposed to be. But uh, what did you make of uh, Jenny's uh, pop psychology uh, moment there uh, to try to make Jason think she's mother with the sweater on? It, it's it's funny. I, I kind of laugh at that every time uh, as well. This is one of the funnier movies, I think, in the series. Oh, completely. It's so, like, satirical, right? Like, maybe it wasn't intended to be, but now when you look back at it, isn't it such a satire of, like, the pop psychology of the late 70s, early 80s? You know, and just just a complete farce of that. It's almost like the airplane guys wrote that for her. You know, I mean, it's, I, mean I feel like that would be something they would put in one of their movies. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like somebody... <laughs> Somebody got a psychology 101 textbook uh, and and dug into it before, you know, writing this script. Oh, d- dug into it. They cut a couple of pages out and taped the paragraph on there for it. It's about what they did. I mean, it's but it's not even a psychology textbook. I mean, they went to their local, you know, bookstore and just grabbed a couple off the shelf and said, yeah, that chapter and then that one on mothers and children. And yeah, we'll just go with that. You know, and but I love her whole like mother's very pleased and he almost goes for it until he sees like mother's head behind her on the shrine. And I do have to say that is a very effective set and set up and scene that looks weird and creepy. Even to this day, that leathery face and all that crap like that, that weirded me out. Yeah, that's definitely uh, one of the stronger, I think, pieces of like, you know, effects in the movie is that prop head. And that's one of the things, um, you know, it, it, it plays a big role in the end of this movie. And one of the things they wanted to do was have another jump scare at the end, like they did in the first one, except this time it was going to be the head, the severed head of, of mother Voorhees opening its eyes. Oh, that would have been horrible. <laughs> yeah, and they, they that's that's what they said. They they mm-hmm. talked about it and then um they they, yeah. they decided no, that would be completely stupid and would take everyone like way out of the movie. Yeah, that's there's no way that would have worked at all. I like the final showdown and the fact that she buries that machete in his in his shoulder. Heck, we already get the double scare anyway. They think the Jason's coming after him and they get ready to take him out when they throw the door open and it's the little dog and then he comes through the freaking window, you know, at her and then like nothing else happens. Like what is that? That's what kills me and makes me feel like they ran out of money is that they're like and then he's going to come through the window and grab her. And then she's going to wake up on a stretcher and we don't know where Paul is. And I'm like, what the heck happened? So we don't even know. And we never know. Like that, that kills the ending of this. It's such a fizzle pop. Yeah. It definitely feels like, um, they couldn't think of a better idea. It, it, it definitely kind of derails everything. And it's not, it's not the strong image of, uh, you know, 10 year old Jason leaping out of the water. No, like, wouldn't it have been better if he had come through the window and grabbed Paul and then 
Jenny wakes up going, where's Paul? Where's Paul? Like that would have made more sense is that, you know, Jason runs off with him in the woods and she can't do anything about it because her legs injured or whatever. Like that, it makes no sense for him to grab her and then for her to still be alive. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like a, well, they, they end up going back and, and retconning this anyway. Right. Uh, but yeah, it definitely feels like that's like a stronger ending and gives you more of a setup for the inevitable sequel. Right, because I think at this point they realize we're setting up sequels. Jason's going to be our killer, so we we don't want to kill him. We want to feel like we vanquish him or whatever, but then he's still out there. And, you know, I I dug that idea. The execution of it eh, lacked a little bit. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that, that uh, Paramount jumped on uh, immediately was the idea that they wanted it to be sequelized they wanted more they wanted it to be you know once a year people would come out on whatever friday the 13th that's released on to watch jason kill again right and you know what they're right because the next two years boom boom these i mean they're throwing these things in theaters so they're, they're like microwave popcorn and no doubt so they they got their wish but did it work eh, we'll see yeah uh, we're at the part for final thoughts recommendations popcorn ratings ron what are yours for friday the 13th part two uh i would go with i'll actually go with a large popcorn it's got one of the more distinctive deaths of the series it's got one of the iconic images of the series in that uh, severed head shrine it seems to be more understanding of what people want. And while the special effects definitely don't match up to the first one, it, it, it seems to be a funnier movie, I guess. Uh, it seems to have more uh, intentional comedy rather than unintentional comedy. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it definitely, it feels like they're starting to find the formula and realize what works and what doesn't work. And fortunately, I don't remember there being a lot of ridiculous pop psychology in any of the later films of the series, except for maybe the one with the uh, psychic girl. Oh, just wait till part nine. Just wait. So, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, I, I agree with your notion that this is wildly entertaining. If, for, if again, if you are willing to accept what these movies are going in, then this one is... It, infinitely more entertaining than the last one because the, it's not nearly as slow. Like they waste no time getting into it. It, it moves quick. It explains itself sometimes too much for everything it needs to do. And you know what? The one thing they don't do is they don't screw up the entire third act. Like it moves like it's supposed to. When Jenny and Paul go back to the camp and they realize everybody's dead and they get into it with Jason, that goes quickly. The only thing is the, the, the botched finish, if you will. But that doesn't mean the whole match was bad. It just means that they screwed up the ending. The landing, they didn't stick. But eh, for the most part, the performance was good. I give it a large popcorn, too. I, I think this one's a lot of fun. And I think a lot of it for me, I will admit to some nostalgia holding on here because this introduced me to the series and it got me to want to watch the rest of them and uh, as much as anything. So I'll go large popcorn as well and high hopes for where we're going, even though I know where we're going is not a road that's going to lead to a real happy place. So This is this is definitely, the the of the first two films, this is definitely the one you put on 
Oh yeah. Uh, for your Halloween party. Oh yeah. You put this song in the background. We step. We have some fun. You have somebody dress up like Ted in the the Shaka Zulu thing again. Yes, that would be fun. But otherwise, I don't know if there's a ton else to to gain from it. Um, just for what it is. But you know, it works more or less, and and can be passable. And I think is a lot of fun if you can get into it. So right crowd, right place. Yeah, you, you could do a lot worse. So I, I'll join you in that one and. Uh, we get ready for part three next time, and uh, going to be a lot of fun. Boy, we we're turning through these series here now, so because this is the part where we start really getting in through Jason here. But Nightmare on Elm Street's coming up right around the corner too, and I'm going to be real curious when these things get side by side how how these podcasts start <laughs> running in my head together. I'm going to be wondering, you know, where's Freddie's mother at some point? I think so. By the time this is all over with, but uh, we got a long way to go in our series. Of course, folks, you can. Keep Keep up with all of it on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. Subscribe on iTunes. That way it'll download for you every Tuesday and Thursday. We've got these coming out. You can catch up with us on Facebook uh, and leave comments about the uh, the show there or uh, catch up with us on Twitter. Message uh, the hosts, and we'll be glad to chat with you about it. We appreciate your support. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.